0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Let's get started. Some of my most favorite people in the world. Please welcome The Skeptic's Guide to the
2: Universe. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Friday, July 13th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me today are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And we have a special guest rogue with us on stage today, all the way from Australia, Richard Saunders. Hello. As you can see, Rebecca is not joining us this year at TAM, but we have a great show for you, so let's get started. So, But we're going to start um, with... This day in skepticism, um, actually, this show is going to be going up on July 21st. So we're going to be talking about what's happened on this day in skepticism in July 21st. Actually, Evan, before you get to your, your items. Yeah. I, I read in, um, that esteemed journal, the Weekly World News.
0: Ooh.
2: <laughs> that the Earth is going to collide with Nibiru on July 21st in a week. We have a week to live. <laughs> wow. So do you guys know what Nibiru is?
1: What's, what's that third planet that's there? Oh, that's just July 21st. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I thought that was... A...
2: Okay. Thanks, George. George, we've started the show you. now. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks. You've, you've seen them all conference. Anyway. <laughs> <no problem. laughs> Nibiru is the 12th planet. You guys didn't know about Nibiru, the 12th the, planet? The 12th planet. That's right. The sun is the first... Ah, (laughs) stupid me. And then Vulcan, planet Vulcan is next. No, no, it's like a crazy. uh, (laughs) And then there's uh, Venus, Earth, then Luna. The moon is the fourth planet. And then worse than all that is they also uh, continue to include Pluto as a planet, the 11th planet. And then Nibiru is the 12th planet after Mm. Pluto. Apparently, Mm. it's it's hurtling towards Earth and will soon collide with the Earth and kill everybody. That makes the Prometheus movie fact-checking look stellar compared to that. (laughs) What the hell? But there's a few things interesting that actually happened on uh, July 21st in the past. The Scopes monkey trial ends, and John Scopes was found guilty and fined for $100. So a $100 fine apparently was more than the statute allowed for. So when uh, the trial was appealed, I mean, the goal was... To appeal the trial to higher and higher courts, get all the way to the state Supreme court, maybe even the uh, the Supreme Court the federal supreme court, and and then knock down the anti evolution law. but what happened was in the lower court um, they decided that they found that the hundred dollar fine exceeded the statute and therefore it was thrown out on a technicality, and the whole purpose of the trial failed, which affected evolution. Education for generations after that. Right, a generation of textbook companies and would not include the E word in uh, their evolution teaching. Also on July 21st, Captain Virgil Gus Grissom became the second American in space with a suborbital flight aboard the Liberty Bell 7. Mm -hmm. That was after Alan Shepard and before John Glenn actually orbited the Earth. Uh, Grissom also was one of the three uh, uh, American astronauts who died during the first Apollo test uh, mission when it caught fire. And last year, we talked about the fact that uh, the space shuttle Atlantis land landed in at the Kennedy Space Center on July 21st, just last year. But, uh, Evan, you have one other item also. Yeah, anyone ever heard
0: of uh, Jean Picard, who was born on July 21st in 1620? French astronomer, cartographer, and hydraulic engineer who is regarded as the founder of modern astronomy in France. Bonjour. (laughs) See, now that guy's even sexier, just because of the curls.
3: This is not weird at all, George. Uh, All right, thanks, George.
2: Thanks for the water. Um, Don't encourage him. I know, just (laughs) kidding.
4: So, Richard, you're going to tell us about this fabulous high-tech device. Wow, this is the amazing, I wonder if people, probably the people in this audience would have heard about these things. It's the bomb detectors that work on the dowsing principle. Oh, yeah. All right, Ouch. you can see that uh, that particular one there, and there are many different variations of them. They go under the names like the ADE five six one. I don't know where they get these letters and numbers from. Or my favourite, it's called the Sniffix. Sniffix, like it sniffs out things. It sniffs. The idea is, and as you can see on the the picture there, people walk along, uh, especially at checkpoints where cars may have bombs hidden underneath the tires or in the tires or in, in the trunk or wherever it is. And this device, if the, if the operator walks by the car, the rod will swing and indicate the presence of explosives. Or if you change the, the chip in the device, it will then find narcotics. Can you just, like, swing. write
2: something on the outside
3: it's
4: yeah. Just yeah. Just and then it will find that?
2: Like Bugs Bunny, remember that? Yeah, who one?
4: That?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you—you you know that, Steve. That's not even a joke because the government did buy bomb detectors where the guy actually had illustrations of the thing that they put inside the device. We yeah, talked right. about that.
2: Yeah, or they Xerox a picture of it. Yeah. So
4: there is money in them dar scams, <laughs> and these things were selling for about uh, sixty thousand bucks a pop, de- depending on on the model. Now, just recently, a man by the name of James um, McCormick. It's interesting when you read about people who've been arrested. They always give their age. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I, why? He's fifty-five. Oh, okay. That's that's nice to know. James McCormick, fifty-five, has been charged now with uh, six counts of fraud re- relating to selling uh, these devices, and six other people, five other people, sorry, have also been charged. Now these devices pop up in countries such as Kenya. Uh, Georgia um, in the former Soviet Union there, uh, Bahrain, Belgium, anywhere where these people can get away by selling them. Now the whole thing of course works on the idiomotor action. People who were at TAM a number of years ago, my first TAM back in the Flamingo, may have seen me demonstrate this whole water divining, water dowsing thing with the divining rods and the way they swing back and forth. It's the same idea involved. The operator walks along with this device, it's got a rod that comes out, There we, there it is, And the slightest muscle twitch of the hand will make the rod swing back and forth. Of course, we know what's going on, but we have to remember that people out there aren't educated in these matters like we are. So it can be very uh, easy for somebody to be fooled by this device seeming to react to a bomb. And when they're demonstrating it, what they'll do is they'll get some real explosives, put them over there, walk past and show the military officials or whoever that the thing actually swings towards where the Mm -hmm. the bomb is and won't swing towards the dummy. Of course, they never do it truly double-blind. This is particularly, particularly bad, folks, because you can imagine the checkpoint. Somebody drives up. There's a bomb in that car. Along comes the, the soldier, whoever it is, with this fake bomb detector, and of course they're not going to find the bomb. driver goes through, and who knows who gets killed. So this is a really important message and an important win for science and reason that these people are being brought to justice and I really hope that the book gets thrown, thrown at them. So this is a great example. Can you imagine that you're at a, you know, a
2: checkpoint and you're using dowsing rods to look for bombs? Yeah,
3: imagine if you were a skeptic and you see them using a dowsing rod, somebody that knows, and they're out there. I mean, there are definitely skeptics
2: in the military that I would, I'd lose my mind. Or um, I wonder what the terrorists thought of that. I mean, did they know (laughs) they're using dowsing rods at the checkpoints? Oh,
4: no, it's a dowsing rod. I'm Uh, turning back. Or were they as fooled as everybody Uh, else? Do terrorists (laughs) sound like that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a terrible thing. It really is a terrible thing, but at least some, some action's been taken. But I tell you what, 10 minutes. With, with, with us, you know, these military officials, we could have taken them aside and said, look, here's how it really works. Uh, maybe it would have saved some lives. I don't know. Well, we, we should point out that, you know, there were a lot of skeptics
2: involved in debunking this device yeah, and bringing it to the yeah. attention of the authorities. So, you know, this is something that as a community we can take credit for, at least partially bringing this to attention, bringing it to this point now where the CEO of the company is being charged with fraud and hopefully will spend the rest of his life in jail. I was invited at the last minute to go to the Freedom Fest across town, which is a, a libertari- big libertarian convention. So, this, is, this guy is Dr. Whitaker, who is an actual MD. Uh, he was giving, uh, it was supposed to be part of a debate on, the va- on vaccines. Are vaccines safe? And a, uh, a regular physician was going to um, be his opposite end, but he recently had surgery and couldn't make it. So they asked me to fill in at the last minute, even though I only had I had no time to prep. And it was, in the, it was Thursday. It was in the middle of Tama. So I wasn't busy at all. Uh-huh. So but I said, fine, I can't let this guy go unopposed. So I sat down across from him cold, but uh, it was all right. So Dr. Whitaker, most famous for being the personal physician of Suzanne Summers. Come and knock on our door. It's so it's a, it's a typical guru. Everything mainstream medicine is wrong. Everything alternative medicine is good. Buy my supplements, you know. So you, we kind of knew what we were in for when he opens up with this graph. Obviously. Uh, so you see this graph? This is his projection of autism incidence into the future based upon the last 20 years. And you can see by 2040, everybody's going to be autistic. <laughs> <laughs> Can't argue with that. One It actually peaks a little bit over 100%, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and he, he did say in his new, yeah, 100%. He said it in words, it's not just you misinterpreting the graph. So. You know we thought it would be interesting to find out how exactly he extrapolated those trends into the future. i don 't know we must have some sophisticated mathematical model, but he said I mean everything he said literally everything he said was a distortion. He did a little bit of the gish gallop, but uh, not so much that i couldn 't you know pick the things that were important and uh, this was I think you know, other than that stupid graph the the, the other uh, most egregious thing that he said. Fortunately, you know, Michael Shermer brought me over there and David Gorski came along and you know, David and I were looking at his new lo- newsletter and with this graph on it and we looked at each other like, really, he's pulling this out? Yeah, so, like
3: why would he show a graph of your sex life over the
2: years? I mean, he must so, hate you, Steve. <laughs> How did he know I was going to be ah. there? It was <laughs> the last minute. Um, so we, like, we exchanged looks like, okay... So we, the, this is where he's going. So we had him. We knew that we had. Him. So this is a graph of mortality, measles mortality rate over the twentieth century, starting at 1900 and then through. And then you could see the the line, the vertical line there, is where the measles vaccine is introduced. So we I, I
1: actually I have a song about this graph. <laughs> Does- you wrote a song about anti-vaccination. About, about that particular graph, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's really
2: Joe, Joe, seriously. We have a tight show; we don't have time. We'll, well, maybe we'll have you play it after our show outside or something. <laughs> outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Did he do this for anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> so mortality. He said. So here's a graph of mortality for measles mortality, and mortality is incidence, so this shows that measles was already almost on the way out before the vaccine was even introduced, so maybe it helped a tiny little bit, but really insignificant. So did you catch the lie in his little spiel there? Mortality is incidence. No. It's not incidence. This is telling, this graph represents how much better we are able to treat people who are acutely ill with measles over the years. During this time, things like the ventilator was invented, you know, basic medical care. So we got really good at keeping people with measles alive. But this graph tells a very different story from an actual incidence graph which you could see that measles was chugging along until the vaccine was introduced, and then it plummets down to almost nothing. The second arrow is when the second dose was introduced into the schedule, and then you know, there's a little pull-out graph. You could see it goes down even further. So It, it shows you got laid in 1984 on right. there. Still remember that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so two completely different stories, the mortality graph and the incidence graph. He showed the mortality graph. I completely nailed him on it. I said, that graph is an absolute deception. And he had no response. He just went on to some other point. So, you know, he had him dead to rights. At one point, he was so bad, he was like polling the audience. How many people know autistic children? It was so bad that Michael Shermer couldn't contain himself and started shouting from him from the audience. <laughs> and the, the moderator had to say, Please go to the audience, please control themselves. I was like, Sit down, Michael, I got it. Um, <laughs> it was funny. But we were interviewing Dr. Rachie yesterday, you know, Dr. Rachie Dunlop from Australia, and she is uh, very active in the anti-vaccination movement down under, so we had our camera rolling. We decided, Okay, great, let's just, you know, talk to her a little bit about how she's dealing with the anti-vaccine movement and if she had any experience debating anti-vaccinationists. My debate went very well. In fact, even though it was a non-skeptical libertarian audience, many of them came up to me afterwards and said you know i came into this not knowing what to think but it was obvious over the course of this debate that you had the science and this guy was a quack so i thought it was a good a good outcome Thank
4: you. Yep.
2: We're sitting here now with Dr. Rachel Dunlop. Dr. Rachie, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thanks, Steve. Hi, Jay. Hey.
2: We wanted to talk to you briefly about uh, the anti-vaccine movement because, you know, we're talking about my recent debate with Dr. Whittaker. But you, you've had quite a bit of success in Australia combating the anti-vaccine movement. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we've had big success, Steve, and, and mainly by um, just dealing with the media and, and letting them know what the anti-vaxxers are really talking about. And that way they've decided that they're probably not a reliable source of information, so they don't speak to them as much anymore. Mm -hmm. But despite being invited to do so, you've chosen not to directly debate with the anti-vaxxers, why is yeah,
5: it? Yeah, because they don't abide by the rules of debate. You know, they they tend to gish gallop, which means they throw a whole lot of information into the pool that we're unable to deal with immediately.
2: Uh, so it makes us look foolish, and they just um, they tend to make stuff up. Hey, are you
1: isn't it though a good idea to debate them when you have a chance? Because ultimately, you know, not to interrupt, but just I think I think it's important to to some. T- George, what are
2: you doing here? Seriously. I just, I just, I just want to add something to the show. Okay, all right, let <laughs> if, if you want to that much, why don't you just sit with us on the panel? Okay? Really? Yes, you can sit. You can join us <laughs> for the show. Today. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right.
1: You're so nice.
2: <laughs> George Reb, everybody. George. What are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So after, just to finish up the the debate topic, uh, in addition to Michael Shermer's sort of outburst in the middle of the talk, after the debate, David Gorski, who also writes on science-based medicine, couldn't contain himself either. So he went right up to Dr. Whittaker and got in his face. (laughs) Dave promised... They, apparently they didn't videotape it, which is unfortunate, but uh, Dave was going to blog for it on Science-Based Medicine on Monday, uh, so you'll get the full blow-by-blow blow, uh, at that time. So, thanks, Dave. How cute. This is cute, isn't it? Isn't this a cute dinosaur? Was. So, was, yeah. So this is, <laughs> this is a... And when I first saw this picture, it almost looks like a cartoon, The lines are are kind of perfect. Especially the head. Something about the head is too... Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, who dies with their mouth open like that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But this is is the classic position of a fossil dinosaur because of the... rigor, right? The The rigor rigor pulls the neck back and pulls the tail into that configuration. So we always find them this way. But this is a juvenile dinosaur uh, that was recently discovered. Uh, in the limestone of northern Bavaria So the limestone, because of, of its constitution Is a great medium for preserving fossils in great detail So that's why you know, the bones and the outline are so exquisitely preserved D- This dinosaur was named, uh, I hate this name Scyromimus albersdorferi so The first name, the genus name Scyromimus means squirrel mimic and I'll tell you why in a second and the second name is after the private collector who, who found this and turned it over to the scientists. This is in the, um, uh, it's a megalosaur, uh, which is a branch of the theropod dinosaurs. And that, that branch is interesting because that's the branch of dinosaurs from which birds evolved. And as you might have guessed by now, this is a feathered dinosaur. The, the, if you look very closely, you can see little striations from filamentous feathers. Now, Okay. Uh, Clark? <laughs> so, as I was saying, there are filamentous feathers in the tail of this particular dinosaur. Uh, and this is a juvenile. These are probably like downy like feathers. This is a ultraviolet illuminated fossil where you could see skin and the feathers pretty well. So, now why is this interesting? This is about 150 million years old. It doesn't look like feathers to me. Well, it's not—it's not a fully formed modern feather. Yeah, it's just a fil- it's a filamentous sure, feather, like proto-feather-like, yeah. you know, uh, a- adaptation. So, what do you think the
3: feathers—the the proto-like feather-like adaptations were for? <laughs> well, Insul- since it's in a juvenile,
2: yeah, it, mating. Lots of possible. Probably not for mating in a juvenile. It, so we don't know, but um, it could have just been probably for thermoregulation. Yeah. You know, it just. Okay. You know, it's a small. This is 28 inches. So this is pretty small. They get big. Th- these types of creatures eventually do get very big. This is about 150 million years old. Prior to this, all theropod feathered dinosaurs were in one subgroup of the theropods called the coelurosaurians, that includes Velociraptor, T. Rex but also Archaeopteryx, the iconic you know, feathered dinosaur. But that's you know, one small subgroup. What's interesting and what's got the paleontologist excited about this fossil is that this is a megalosaur. So it's much more basal. It's much farther back in the branching relatedness of, the, uh, of the group, this group of, of-
3: What was that that though? you just had there? That was cool. That's cool. That that looks like a demon. (laughs) That's exactly what that is. That is is so cool.
2: Um, So, that is, you you don't know what that is? I I said I think it's a demon. (laughs) 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 That is my favorite fossil the Berlin specimen of Archaeopteryx lithographica. It's
0: only because you could pronounce that one.
2: That's a little bit easier to pronounce. So, this was discovered about 150 years ago, right about the time that you know, Darwin was publishing Origin of Species, and you know the creationists at the time, and still, still 150 years later, make the claim that uh, there are major groups that lack connections between them. And of course, Darwin said, "Well, we'll find them. We'll find fossils that connect the major groups of animals, like birds and reptiles." And then, lo and behold, almost made to order. Which is not something else the creations were quick to point out. The Berlin specimen, and there was also the London specimen right before this, although it was presented later, of, uh, of Archaeopteryx, a beautifully preserved fossil, again in limestone. Limestone, yeah, yeah, with, um, with uh, clear, obvious, now more modern-looking, actually fully modern-looking flight feathers. So this thing clearly flew. You know, it has the the asymmetrical shaft, which is a, an adaptation for flight. But Steve, it looks like its hooves are on fire. Well, that's the wings. <laughs> <laughs> that thing is really cool, And you can cool, see, again, man. the neck is in the same position, you know, as the other dinosaur. Um, um, that looks painful, Now, do you that think position. that
3: that thing could flap its wings and take off like yes. a modern bird and everything? Not
2: like a modern bird. It lacks the uh, adaptation, the sternal adaptation for taking off from a standing position. So it had to either run or drop from a branch. Okay. So it, was, it could fly, but not as well as modern birds. It was half reptile, half birds. Perfect transitional fossil. I just love it. Could it be just a glider? Um, no, it's more than a glider. It definitely could it definitely could do full flapping flight, but not as well as a modern bird. But this is 150 years ago, and for a long time that was the only feathered pre you know bird dinosaur connection we had. And then since the 1980s, we've been digging up tons of uh, feathered dinosaurs in China, really showing that. uh, And also specimens of like T. t Rex and Velociraptor showing feathers and proto-feathers, and now essentially that whole group of theropods were feathered. And now we're pushing it back much farther to almost the base of the theropods. So it's possible that maybe all theropods were feathered, and maybe even farther back than that. um, You know, some paleontologists suspect that it may, may go back to very close to the to the base of dinosaurs as a group. But you know, we don't we don't know yet. That's still speculation. But they said we wouldn't be surprised. Again, it's always hard to know like what the oldest first you know, thing is. It's always dependent on your specimens. And probably you know, uh, things go back farther than the fossil evidence indicates to us. So if anything, it's at least this far back and, and if not farther. So I wrote about this recently on my blog. And again, I always love to, talk to write about feathered dinosaurs because it's, It really is a home run. It's a home run for evolution, yeah, because Darwin sort of predicted we're going to see connections between major groups, and we did, and the creationists said that's just a weird bird or that's just a weird dinosaur, you know, they kind of would say one or the other. And then now we're fleshing out the whole feather dinosaur thing. They said, well, there's no, you know, transitional feather, there's a transitional feather. So, I mean, every time the creationists said there's no, there's a gap, there's no this, you know, as we're finding more fossils, we're finding, it's exactly what evolutionary theory predicted that there should be this group of feathered dinosaurs showing a clear sort of connection between birds and dinosaurs. And now the connection I think is even a little bit stronger. So I wrote about this and then someone else blogged a a response, writing in direct response to my blog, but evolution- In quotes. In quotes, novella means Darwinism. No, I meant evolution. Predicted none of this. I challenged Novella to cite references from evolutionary biologists during the past 150 years predicting that birds rather than reptiles would be found to be related to dinosaurs based on Darwinian principle of heritable variation and natural selection and common descent. Does anyone want to take a guess who wrote that? It wasn't me. Michael Egnor. Of course. Egnor. On his blog, Egnorant. Um <laughs> kind of a, t- took our pet name for him and made it his own. Uh, so, it, again, it, I always marvel at how many misconceptions they could pack into one paragraph or one sentence. Evolution doesn't predict just the the, the, ba- the basic fact of evolutionary theory that you know common descent, things are related through common descent. Doesn't predict any specific connection. We, Darwin didn't predict, well, we're going to find out that birds are related to theropod dinosaurs, or not even necessarily dinosaurs, although even at that time, like T.H. Huxley thought, yes, it's going to be dinosaurs. That, so that was an early theory of where the connection would be made. He also I mean, doesn't seem to get the basic facts of what we're talking about. He says that dinosaurs would be related to reptiles. Dinosaurs are reptiles, They're not related to reptiles. I mean, he just doesn't get even the basic facts of what he's talking about here. Um, Dinosaurs are reptiles, and birds evolved from reptiles, and it turns out they evolved from theropod dinosaurs. What evolutionary theory predicts is that we would find a connection to some other group, not a particular path. But they, that's a misconception that, that creationists used all the time to say, well, evolution can't make predictions because it can't predict and didn't predict the specific tree of life, the specific connections that existed. Sometimes it does in terms of morphology. We say, well, okay, this creature has this particular morphology therefore they're probab- probably related to these other groups. And then you know, that could later be confirmed with genetic information, for example. Um, so it's not entirely true. But like in this case, you know, it, we could have found that you know, that uh, birds were related to other types of of, uh, reptiles, something more basal than than dinosaurs or some people thought, and even up until even now, that they were more closely related to crocodiles, you know, based on lung anatomy and stuff. But um, that, if that were true, evolution would still be true. You know, again, it doesn't need or require or predict a specific pathway of evolution, but that's how we twisted the whole thing around to say that evolution didn't predict this. Uh, always amazing that they could do that.
4: One of the things that is a giveaway with the, uh, the, the theropods and the, the birds, of course, is they have many common things, uh, many common things in common, <laughs> <There we go. laughs> including the wishbone. Now, these theropod dinosaurs had a wish, wishbone, as does modern birds. It's called the furcula, and there's a very good friend of uh, the skeptical movement in Australia by the name of Dr. Paul Willis. He has a great talk where he gets a big roast duck or a roast chicken, and pulls it apart bone by bone, explaining the similarities between the, what we find in the fossil record and the modern bird. And he calls his talk, uh, How to Bugger a Creationist with a Roast Chook. <laughs> 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 right. They have a furcula, but
2: they lack the triosseal Canal. I think that's what you call it. That is isn't an uh, adaptation for that taking off from the ground. So, again, they have some adaptations for flight, yep. but not others, so it's perfect. Evan, what are we looking at here? picture own. of some dots
0: well, you know, it's clearly labeled, I think.: Is, this, is
3: it
2: a star map? <laughs> not quite. No. No, is, this from, uh, is that from that movie? <laughs> oh
0: gosh, right. Oh boy. Well, is, is there, any... there a
2: star in the system? <laughs>
0: The dwarf planet Pluto, yes. But is, is there anything the Hubble Space Telescope can't find? I mean, what an amazing instrument yes. this has been. Big point, but, yeah. it has, you know, If only we pointed it in that direction, it might actually find it. Um, on Saturday, July 7th, the venerable space telescope discovered the fifth now known natural satellite of the dwarf planet Pluto. What? How many? Five. Now it's Five. <laughs> Did you even know there was a fourth? <laughs> no, there was a fourth or a third for that matter. Right? Well, now you see it right in front of you. Hubble wow. is observing Pluto uh, and its moons because it's looking for possible hazards uh, to the New Horizons spacecraft, which is en route to Pluto. And it's going to be flying by in July of 2015. So I can't wait to see those images as it goes by. Um, I'd say that... Uh, Based on this, Hubble was very successful in looking for for hazards, because last year it discovered the fourth moon, uh, which is designated for now as P4, and now last week it discovered the fifth, which is now designated P5. P5 is an oblong-shaped object, and it's only about 25 kilometers in diameter. It's a very small moon.
2: Is it a dwarf moon?
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I consulted an astronomer on that actually, because that is a good question. Are there dwarf planets? Why are there dwarf moons? Is there a category? Uh, thank you, Pamela Gay. No, there are not uh, dwarf moons. Moons are moons. Midget no sp- moons? I have
6: tiny mm, moons. Not yet. Ha- just moons. Just moons. Just moons. So moon. haven't you heard heard the, satellites. Haven't I heard the word moonlit?
3: Moonlit. Moonlit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Was, yeah. Moonlit. Spherically challenged.
0: <laughs> well, you know, not all moons are spheres, um, such as this one. So it's these and other potentially small, tiny objects that are uh, in orbit around the Pluto-Charon system that uh, could endanger the spacecraft. You know, it's $700 million we've invested in, uh, in sending, uh, sending this uh, craft out there. So uh, it would not take much. A particle about the size of a BB could penetrate this thing and uh, send it uh, to its fate. At the right
3: velocity, yeah. Well, sure.
0: And that thing is moving right along. So P4 and P5 join Charon, which is the large moon that works with Pluto, and uh, whose discovery was announced exactly 34 years prior to to the day that uh, P5 was spotted. I thought that was interesting. Um, But along with the small moons of Nix and Hydra, which were also discovered by Hubble... In, uh, in 2005, and together these, the astronomers are hypothesizing that all five of these satellites could be remnants of a giant collision uh, that occurred early in the solar system. So this is all very new and fascinating uh, information that we are still learning much about.
2: Can't they just be captured? Okay, so I know so Nix, Hydra and Charon are all in the same plane, so they probably weren't captured, but it looks like well, P4 and P5, I don't know. uh, What's their orientation like compared to the other moons? Because it it could also mean that there's just a lot of stuff out there for Pluto to capture, right?
0: Right, right. It could be, and you know, especially uh, well. It it could. They could be captures, and but it it could also have been a collision. That is unknown at this time. We, we, we just don't know. I think it would be, though, unusual for something as small, I mean Pluto's really small, uh, for it to go, uh, you know, for something to get close enough to, uh, to capture it in its orbit. I, you know, right. I think those, uh, those chances seem remote, but not impossible.
3: I love the idea that we're still discovering things about our own solar system. When we're right here, and we think, oh, we can see so far away, we know so much, but, you know, things like this happen. We, we need to, to absolutely up the ante with space exploration.
0: No doubt about it. Yeah. Now, as far as the temporary names P4 and P5 are
2: concerned, we... Thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, both of you. Before we get to the names, we get to the names oh, yeah. Evan. So, by the way, do you know what Nyx and Hydra mean? Where does the name Nyx come from? Mythology somewhere. Yeah, yeah. very good. Mythology. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, Pluto is the god of the underworld. Charon is the boatman of the river Styx. Nyx is Charon's mother, mm-hmm. the goddess of darkness and Hydra is the nine-headed monster oh, yes, that yes. guards the river Styx. So I wonder how much they're going to stick to that theme, but we'll see that in a second. But before we get on to that. Wait, wait, wait Steve,
3: isn't Cthulhu actually
2: Pluto? Cthulhu yeah. is Pluto? <laughs> yeah. Cthulhu would be a good name for one of the moons. Lovecraft. That's right. All right. Can you guys, I, 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 I would wager that almost if not everyone in this room could probably name the eight planets of our solar system, but I wonder how many of you can name the five dwarf planets in order. From closest to farthest away from the sun. Jay? In
0: order? Jeez. You want to give it a try?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> Bob, how could you Bob, you probably are the best. How could you do? Nah, no good. Alright. So we got Ceres is the first one. It's actually in the asteroid belt. Pluto. Then Eris. Eris also has a moon, Dysnomia. Then Maki Maki, which is uh, named after the Rapanui god of fertility. And then Haumea, they're named after the Hawaiian goddess of fertility, and has, also has two moons. So that's a, a, a dwarf planet with two moons, Hiaka and Namaka, which are the daughters of, uh, of Haumea. So not the fir- Pluto's not the only dwarf planet to have moons, which is interesting. Right.
0: Speaking of the names of uh, (laughs) things out in our solar system. So temporary names for now, P4 and P5. We have to wait and see if the IAU, that's the International Astronomical Union, will bestow upon these moons uh, names, actually official names. And uh, apparently they're going to be having an international meeting next month in China, from what I understand. And this meeting occurs every three years, and this is the time where they do bestow certain names. However. We decided to uh, take a poll of, uh, of a lot of people, a lot of people, and uh, we gathered for you the uh, top ten names that uh, the new moons of Pluto should be named. All right? So these are the top ten. Where are we? Yep. Yes, top ten names. Well, top ten names for P5. Number ten, Zamit. Yeah.
2: So you, you gave him the yeah. premise that these are underworld figures.
0: Oh, well, yes, you did yeah. a fine job of that already. Yeah. You know? yes, that's to, right? to, to keep with the theme of the underworld. yeah. That was part of the plan. Yes, This is all underworld named potential new names for P5. Number ten was Zamet. Number nine, Geller. Number eight, Gambino. Number seven, Ridley Scott. Oh, Palpatine. Number six, Chopra. Number five,
3: Sandusky. Number f- Somebody actually said, if you piss me off, I'm going to Sandusky you. (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Number four, Oprah. (laughs) Number three,
0: Popoff. Number two, Ridley Scott.
3: (laughs) It did make the list.
0: And the number one name for the new moon, P5, is Sylvia. Thank you very much. There you have it. All right, good job. Are you
2: going to submit these to the uh, Astronomical Union? Done. Done, okay. Thank
4: you, Evan. how many moons do you think are in our, our solar system, known moons?
0: In, in total? Hmm. I don't know. We're talking about all those little chunky ice particles around the and, and stuff. Anybody? How many moons
4: do we have in the solar system? What do you think? Random number? Yes? I could tell you exactly how many we have. Uh, you could, he can tell us exactly how many. <laughs> but he has the 180? cheat 180? That's not a, That's not bad.
2: Why don't you so tell us? Earth 1, Mars 2, Jupiter 63, Saturn 61, Uranus 27, Neptune 13 for planets. And then I told you the dwarf planets.
4: Right. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. And, by the way, the names given to moons come from a variety of mythological sources and Shakespeare. And Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, and Shakespeare. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. Mythology and Shakespeare, right. Bob, what is that? Tell us what these squiggle lines Looks like a flying oh, no, spaghetti monster before. to me. The flying spaghetti monster. Ah. <laughs>
0: Thank you.
6: It's like particle tracks in a bubble chamber to me. I'm going to talk about the Higgs, of course. We, so, I had to mention the Higgs today after the uh, after what happened the past few weeks. It's been all over the news. Uh, this July 4th was especially uh, special for me because not only was it my birthday, but uh, there was the uh, there was the. Um, How old are you, Bob? It's on facebook go check facebook <laughs> um but it was also of course the big discovery of or the big announcement of the of of the
2: higgs of the higgs particle they um, announced that they're finally going to announce it sometime in the future
6: <laughs> well i mean it's yeah they were very frustratingly hesitant to say we have discovered the higgs particle of, of course and uh, and that's just that just they're just good scientists because they didn't reach the you know the absolute level Five sigma or whatever that uh, would that would warrant them saying yes we have just absolutely discovered it with enough confidence but uh, yeah but it's close enough and I think everybody pretty much agrees that yeah they probably found if they didn't find the Higgs they found something that is very Higgs like typical quotes though when something like this. Physicists at the world's largest atom smasher announced July 4th that they are more than 99% sure that they found a new and heavy boson particle that may be the Higgs boson. Of course, if I wrote that, I would have said that they were 99.9999% sure, but that was just me. But a, a lot of people I talked to um, were kind of interested in the, in the news, and, and uh, but they were like, well, you know, how, what does it mean to me? You know, what does it so what kind of you know i get i get i get that a lot what are the you know how is this going to affect my life or what are the implications of finding the higgs so i thought that would be an interesting angle talking about the higgs particle um you know what we, what's going to flow from this what do we know if they f- did find the higgs What is it what does that kind of mean huh
2: anti-gravity anti-gravity
6: don't <laughs> <laughs> get your hopes up on that one
4: time travel i read a book about anti-gravity i couldn't put it down I'm proud of you <laughs> 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 All right,
6: back to the science now. <laughs> um, the, 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 one of the biggest things, obviously, is that we have discovered the, or will, if, assuming it's the Higgs particle, we have discovered the origin of mass. That's kind of a huge discovery. I think you'd agree. Now, the interesting thing is that the Higgs particle isn't really the, the main thing about particles acquiring mass is not the Higgs particle it's, itself, but what the particle is associated with, and that's, and that's the Higgs field. It's particles that interact with this field that's the thinking of how they actually acquire mass. That's the main ram- implication of this discovery: is that the origin of mass is, is is number one in my book. But there's there's a few other ones.
3: Bob, I, I don't I don't know why you were saying like it's not that, or people were saying it's not a big deal. I mean, we've been waiting for this. We want to know what the origin of mass is. I think that um, you know just by itself it's fascinating. But we also can safely assume that it's going to lead to a lot of other information
6: for science geeks sure absolutely but there's a lot of people out there jay that just kind of like maybe heard about it in the news a few times and you know they're not attending conferences like this or reading about it so, but uh, but you know,
2: I don't even know that we need to do that. You know, I, it's, I find it a little frustrating, it's like, okay, we have, here's a major basic science discovery about how the universe is put together. Mm. It's like the, the final big piece in the standard model. So what techno gadget am I gonna get out of this? Who cares? Right. I mean, that, yeah. that's not the point of this. And also, no, I, you can't predict. That's the other thing. Anything you, anything you try to say, honestly, is gonna be pure speculation. You're, pu- you're pulling out of your behind. And it's, that's science fiction. And I, I, I don't know. I think it may be a little bit counterproductive to focus on the science fiction speculation rather than what does this teach us about how the universe actually yeah. functions. But, that's but also, cool guys, it,
3: The fact that we did predict that yeah. this was going to be discovered, that to me by itself is fascinating because it proves that our, our
2: baseline theories have some teeth to them. Science works, bitches. I mean, that's <laughs> <laughs> the, the, that's the story of the Higgs. Yeah. Not are we going to have anti-gravity? You know.
6: Yeah, but still, there's, there's still other things that are, are going to flow from this discovery. I'm not yeah. going to am not going to talk about an anti-gravity device. Yeah. I'm going to talk about the the science. What how is science going to progress from this discovery? Because you you have to admit that sometimes there are discoveries that are. Interesting in their own right, but it's also interesting to know, you know, what's you know what, what's going to flow from this. You sure. know, what's going to what might we see in the future because of this of this one discovery? Whether you know, not necessarily some cool gadget, but just yeah. in terms of just science. And a couple more would be um, Steve. You've probably heard about uh, the unification of uh, the scientists force. have been trying to unify forces for for decades and decades, <clears throat> trying to find out, you know, can we get down to one force? And we're not there. We're not there yet. But uh, this finding the Higgs can actually help us really understand the unification of electromagnetism and the weak force. Now, scientists have unified those forces for, it's been many, many years, and they discover that it's really the manifestation of one force called the electroweak force, but discovering the Higgs can help us really finally solidify exactly what, you know, what that means and, and how that works. So that, that's another
2: thing that, well, that could be there. Could it lead to the unification of the forces with gravity, too? It, um, or quantum gravity? It, it actually it will it can help with the unification of some other forces,
6: but um, the standard model, which is which is the theory, which is the you know the theory, the incredibly successful theory that, that talks about all the all the particles that we're aware of. This was the last particle that that this theory predicted. So this is like the crowning achievement of, of the standard model of physics. But that that model, Steve, does not really ad- does not really address things like uh, gravity and dark matter yet. So that, so it's going to have to be either extend it or have some other theory.
2: Uh, to, to deal with that stuff. So, I'm not sure if we could really at yeah, defi- the- Definitely, we need another theory right. to unify them that subsumes them. But I'm just wondering if now that we know the properties of the Higgs, or assuming when we get to that point where we can say this is the properties that the Higgs actually has, will that help the theoretical physicists formulate their theories of quantum gravity? I don't know.
4: Well, it, that, that's the point you made. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know what this will lead to. No, it's, I don't know. It's very,
2: you don't know. <laughs> There may be a theoretical astrophysicist out there who does know. I don't know. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, nobody stands up, of course. All right, what else you got, Bob?
6: Supersymmetry. Uh, this could uh, this this discovery could help expand and really boost the theory of supersymmetry, which I'll I'll just briefly go over. Supersymmetry posits that. All particles that we know have these super partner particles that are slightly different than their their other partner. And, and this theory could actually, uh, like I said, help us unify some of the other forces. Um, and it can even possibly give us a, a candidate for dark matter. So finding the Higgs could help us find dark matter. So that's, that would be an interesting, yeah. uh, interesting outflow from that event. And I wanted to give a, a quick shout-out. I mean, all, I don't want to take anything away from Peter Higgs, physicist Peter Higgs. He's the, he's the man of the hour. He, the guy's awesome. But in um, and, and uh, a lot of the articles that I read, nobody really mentioned uh, physicist Satyendranath Bose. Um, this is the guy that worked with Einstein, I believe, in the 20s t- in classifying subatomic particles, and they named the boson after him. And it just seemed a little odd that they never even mentioned this guy whose you know, bosons are named after him. So I just wanted to give him a quick little shout-out. Cool.:
2: Jay, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> Dr. Sexy Time?: Yeah, so this game, please.
3: you may ask oh, thanks, what is Dr. Sexy Time? And I, I wish I was Dr. Sexy Time. Doctor. Sexy, Sexy Time is uh, an app that was made by Reed and Karen or listeners of the show, and last year at the SGU dinner, they won. A voiceover, you know, through our auction of me. So I, you know, he came up to me afterwards. and said, Yeah, I won the voiceover, but I had this idea that I want to run past you. Would you be willing to lend your voice to this app that I'm, I'm developing? And it, and you know, he convinced me that it's all science based. You know, a lot of critical thinking involved in the app. There's a lot of really awesome features in the app that uh, that I thought were cool, like basic things like sex education. Visual information guide for sexual positions. Science-based homework assignments what for couples. My favorite one. What though, was that? Is, like, what was that? Science-based homework assignments. Can I go back for one customers? more.
2: Sexual positions? Right. positions. There's a science. of Can sexual you say positions?
3: that again, please? No, it's not a science of sexual positions. Okay. It, it, just let me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, the, the funny one here is the ability to reenact famous movie sex scenes. That's pretty cool, right? Jay, did you did you beta test this app? Well, he let me use the the masturbation
2: version of it, and I tested the hell out of that. As Jay said, inspired by this, we're going to talk about some sex myths. There's actually quite a lot of them, but we we chose, I don't know, seven, did you say?
3: All right, so I'll I'll ask you guys, I'll I'll present the myth. You tell me if it's true or false. They're not all wrong. Uh, Men want sex more than women do. If you agree with that, applaud. Okay, that is actually wrong. No, Jay, 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 that is true. No, 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 there's a caveat. Like, there, there, there's some things. Men want sex more than women when they're in their late teens, but averaged out, it's wrong. No,
2: it's not true. <coughs> I'm sorry, I did some additional not, research. I, 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 I want to know what the truth is. I don't care yeah, what the okay. truth is. okay, so I looked thoroughly. I didn't buy that when you said that when we were prepping for the show, so I, I looked it up very thoroughly, and... At every age, men have a higher libido than women, period. Um, so they, they do want it more often. Why didn't you tell me this yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> really? But it's, it's, it's interesting. The other thing is that it very, the literature very consistently shows this. But in addition, men are much more simplistic in what will arouse them. So they're, we're, men what are... men are the people nodding over yeah, there? It's, men <laughs> are... Absolutely predictable in terms of their sex drive, whereas women are complicated and unfathomable. I'm <laughs> just quoting the literature.
4: And, in the nicest possible uh, is that, way. Is that new, right, is in the nicest possible way.
0: Yeah. Didn't need science to tell me that.
2: Also, they, the, the literature said this, that you know, women need to get warmed up before they'll want to engage in physical intimacy, while for guys... The physical intimacy is the thing, right? That's, that's how they make a connection. So women need to feel connected first, then they're interested in sex, whereas men feel that the sex is the connection.
3: All right, so the key idea here is, Steve said, the literature says, and yes. I don't have access to the doctor literature. I have access to Google. Right. <laughs> so that explains why I got it wrong. I don't care that it's wrong. No, I'm just saying I just, <laughs> that. Okay, it's fine. Yeah. I don't, it really, All right. Moving on. Right, moving on. Next, the next maybe myth, maybe not.
0: <laughs>
3: men can't have multiple orgasms. Steve. <laughs> well, what does the audience think? Is this applaud if you think that this is true—that men can't have multiple orgasms?
2: Oh, I didn't fool wow. anybody on that one. One person. More than
3: there, one. That's, that's multiple, the, multiple. No, is no, more no. Than that's one. he. He said define multiple. That is the the point here.
4: I, I didn't uh, quite that, hear you. Can you come again? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. So.
3: Men, men can't have multiple orgasms like, like a woman can, but men could be brought... First off, you have to de- define what the word climax is. It's not just when a, when a man ejaculates. The, a man could have a, a peak in arousal, but a man can't ejaculate like, over and over again like a, wo- like a woman can. Can we talk about the Higgs again? <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, no, Higgs, Higgs, right, so, Higgs ejaculated. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah, he did. So it's rare. It's true that men can, but it's actually rare. And it's usually associated with dry orgasms, but not always. Yeah. But it's rare. So for, for most men, that is true. Okay, third one. Too much masturbation makes the penis
3: shrink in size. Jay. <laughs> <laughs> I have, with the help of Dr. Sexy time, I have proven that this does not happen. You right. cannot masturbate too much as long as you're still into it, just, I guess,
2: right? You can just stop there. All right, let's go on to the next one. Next one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would it, be amazed. So the next one is Stephen is low carb. But yeah, so I sweet. was looking at this one, too. I looked this up, and there's <laughs> all these websites where people are like, will this blow my Atkins diet? Nice. What nice did you just say? <laughs> nice blow. choice of words <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, this is Atkins this in the zone? You know, it's like, well, you know, with the, with the volumes that we're talking about, don't worry about it. So, <laughs> but semen is actually mostly fruit
3: sugar, fructose, and enzymes. It's not low carb. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of different carbohydrates.
2: Yeah, mostly fructose, right.
3: All right, number five. The average erection is eight inches.
2: Richard? <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Let's poll the women in
2: the audience. Yeah. Wait, wait. Do you think this is, is that, true? Is that length or girth?
3: No. <laughs> oh my God. If you think it's true, right. be then,
2: upstanding. Um. Mm, All,
3: right. Okay. All right. So no, it, uh, thank God, it isn't the average. It's that's a <laughs> Unless there's like one guy out there. that's like yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it's closer to six, which every man in the room just went. Oh, good. Okay. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Men think about sex every seven seconds. I'm sorry. What was that, Jay? I was distracted for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one is is partially false. They say that 23% of men claim to fantasize frequently, and I guess when they say frequently, they're thinking in the seven-second range. And I think we're probably talking about younger males and older males. But this one is mostly wrong.
2: No, it's wrong. I mean, so frequently <laughs> is not every seven seconds. That's just absurd. But the, from my reading, the does anyone want to guess what the average figure is? Average, just. Across? Eight seconds. It's, it's once once a day. Once a what? day. Which oh, wow. is which is twice as much as women. Okay.
3: Having sex in water will kill sperm. What do you guys think? Is that true? It says it's true. It says now this, let me let me read it. Don't get pissed at me. Some of some of it says here, some of your swimmers may die, but it isn't an effective method of birth control. Yeah, right. Thank you. Um the, of course, the heat in the water, any chemicals in the water can kill the sperm. So, yes, it kills sperm. Like, typically, you know, you, there, there are circumstances where people can get pregnant from swimming with someone or whatever. But for the most part, the heat and any chemicals in the water will do a number on the, the sperm. So this, there is truth to this. It's just not, you know, doesn't mean you could have sex in a hot tub and you're all good to go. Right. Okay. Bob, you're going to tell us about this blue thing on the screen here. What is, is that? A sapphire?
6: What is that? Maybe. How many people here have external hard drives connected to their to their computers? Okay. How many people have had those external hard drives crash after just like a couple years? <laughs> Pretty much the same number of people, right? Is it? Th- How would you feel though if you had a hard drive that would last, guaranteed to last, for one million years? Would that would that make you happy? I'll buy that for a dollar. Well, well, you can't have one. You, you cannot have one. <laughs> they, uh, one reason is that they're about $30,000, and well, the, the ones that, are, that I'm going to talk to you about and that are proposed. And also the, uh, the capacity of this hard drive is about 600 megabytes, which is not as much as my credit card. So it's really, it's really not too much. But the, real, the, the main reason, though, is that this isn't even really a hard drive um it's not a it's not a hard drive at all despite what the titles of all these articles I read about this says it's it's not even a hard drive so so what what is this then this is actually a drive that's proposed by the French nuclear waste management agency andra as part of their plan for a nuclear waste disposal And, and warning future, future archaeologists about the danger that, that's right below their feet. Now, this wouldn't be a problem if we could just launch this stuff into the sun. A lot of people will say, Bob, let's just launch this stuff into the sun. And that, yeah, that would be, that would be a great idea. But with present technology and with chemical rockets, it's, it's really dangerous, obviously, launching, can you imagine launching tons of radioactive waste? Even Um, one
2: accident could be a disaster.
6: Right. And it's also very expensive. I mean, uh, there's lots of different figures all over the web, but, it's about two thousand to fourteen thousand dollars per pound just to get this stuff into low Earth orbit. So, so that's not going to happen. So, what you really need to do is you, you've got to sequester this on Earth, obviously. And a lot of the countries that deal with this nuclear waste problem, they all agree pretty much that if you put this stuff five hundred meters below the ground, it, you're not going to have any problem with it. It's not going to get into the water table. It's not going to. It's not going to get up and out and and you know make everybody radioactive.
2: You mean like Yucca Mountain?
6: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. A mountain is a good one too. But the plan, the specific plan that these people are looking at, are are are, you know just deep, deep, deep under under the ground. The problem though with this is that that you have to let future. You know, we're talking millennia or a million years. You have to let future, future humans or robots maybe, or future zombies if that's all that's left. You got to let these guys know. Hey, under your feet is something really nasty, and you don't want to go. You don't want to go near this stuff. I mean, you can't, what are you going to do? You can't put a sign. If you put a sign, how long is a sign going to last? Or even if you use a laser to etch it in stone, that's not going to last a million years. So this is where the hard drive comes in. So what these guys did is they took um, industrial sapphire, and they made two platters about 20, 20 centimeters in diameter, and they they etched really, etch the information or the warning or whatever you want to put on them using platinum onto, the, uh, onto these platters. They're really platters. Then you molecularly bond them together, and uh, there's you got your little data archive platter, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And uh, the images can be really—you can fit like they predict like forty thousand pages of information onto on one of these guys.
3: I mean, so what are they going to show? Like people dying from the radiation with an arrow pointing little, down?
2: Little stick figures or something?
3: I mean, well, seriously, if they're, if they're worried about people that far into the future. They're not going to be talking any any language that's known today.
2: Well, well, that's just it, and this is
6: what is actually was a little surprising. One of the quotes from these scientists was that we have no idea what language to to write it in, and to me that was a little bit surprising because I mean well, it doesn't. Vulcan. Oh, Vulcan, okay. Klingon, right? <laughs> Klingon, um, Klingon. To me, it's this is a Rosetta Stone. So what you'd have to do is, you know, you've got forty thousand pages of data that you can put in there. You could put in, you could put a big warning in, you know, but just put ten or twenty languages in there, and uh, you could also, you could use a numbering system, use binary or uh, or you know or octal or hexadecimal whatever you want you could throw that in there but the pictographs i think just putting the images i think would be would be a really great idea as well just i mean all you really have to do is show someone digging and then dying or something like that it, it shouldn't be <laughs> should it shouldn't be too it shouldn't be too hard to let them know that hey you know you don't want to uh, go near this stuff the, the the fear though that i have is that they they would see this and get curious and then think oh well let's find out what's da- what's down there yeah but oh, how
3: bad would that be to people forty thousand years in the future too like you know, like it's what, in pro- terms of the uh, the radioactivity. Yeah.
6: Oh, I mean, some of this stuff has
2: half lives way way beyond that. Jay. You're That's- talking about well, like with future technology. Yeah, you know?
3: yeah, like. It's probably not going to be a problem at all to deal with radiation. But then we don't
2: have to worry about any future civilization that doesn't have a problem with radiation. They're doing this in case there's a future civilization that can't deal with the radiation but still needs to know about it. But you're right. If there's like, you know, radiation be gone or something a thousand years from now. <laughs> <laughs> Buy it now. So okay, then it's not, it's a non-problem. The but, other, this is obviously in case. Doesn't this doesn't
1: assume happen. a level of technology to be able to read this thing in the first that's, place? That's yeah, just right.
2: it. That, that's what, it's a really,
1: huge assumption.
6: That's what's interesting about this. You, all you wouldn't really need to read this is, is a, is a microscope. That's it. You wouldn't need, you know, Windows two million and ten to operate this. Um, just a, just a microscope or really, really good robot eyes. And that's all you would need. You'd be, you'd be good
3: to go. I don't want to sound like a jerk about this, but like maybe we should take care of the people that are here today before we worry about people 40,000 years in the future. But Jay,
6: if you're going to sequester this stuff underground, you, you, you know, throw us, Throw a bunch of platters in there. You got to have a warning. You got to think. I mean, we're polluting the earth with this stuff that's going to last for a million years, millennia. You've got to think of all right, what you know, what's going to happen down the road because this isn't something that's going to go away soon. So, I mean, it's not going to cost too much
3: to implement this. All right, so we're not going to get these diamond hard drives then. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this sapphire, is sapphire, sapphire, whatever. Not the th- what I'm saying is, <laughs> this is not going to turn in five years. We won't have these. No. Okay.
1: Is there any historical equivalent to something like this? Is there any question. civilization think, that has left
6: I think the I think the pyramids that are considered uh you know don't don't mess with these pyramids don't mess with what's inside Because of in the sacredness. they were I think they were meant as a warning don't you know don't mess with what's in here and of course we did and lots of people did. But
1: that's what I mean like would this be like the coolest thing to go check out? I mean in terms of Here's this awesome story with these awesome pictures of these like strange-looking people with primitive cell phones doing stuff. I don't whatever the equivalent would be of just. We should go down there and this, take our helmets off as soon as and we take get our there. helmets off. Yeah,
2: could you? Yeah, obviously, but they would probably be curious as to what's going on. Yeah. But they would at least know to be cautious. That right. or like don't build houses on top of this or something. You know, yeah. they, they would know that something is going on. So uh, it's interesting. What's the probability this will actually help somebody in the future? Probably pretty low. But that's okay. It's actually, I think it's cool This is a proof of concept. And At least right. we could say we tried. Right? So if it doesn't all work out, yeah, well, look we at it Look at it
6: from a return on investment. I mean, yeah. It's not that expensive, and you could save lots of people potentially, and animal life, of course, uh, by just implementing
2: that. All right. So we have uh, just enough time left for science or fiction. It's time for... Science or Fiction. So uh, last night at the dinner, we auctioned off the, uh, the privilege of sitting up here with us to be on Science or Fiction. And Reed Kuhn, uh, who hopefully is coming up here now. Reid Kuhn, will you join us on stage for Science or Fiction? Steve, you know who Reed is?
3: No, who's Reed? Just by, it is a coincidence that he won the auction. It's Dr. Sexy time.
2: Hey. Ah, ah, Dr. Sexy time. (laughs) So uh, on our live events for Science or Fiction, what we do is I will show and and read the three items and then I'll poll the audience uh, and then we'll see what you guys think about it. Then we'll have Those of us on stage give you their analysis, their deep skeptical analysis of these items. We'll pull the audience again to see what influence they had, and then I'll do the reveal. So item number one, scientists have isolated a new kind of fat cell in humans known as beige fat. Hmm. Item number two, scientists have resurrected, in quotes, a 500 million year old bacteria, E. coli, by reproducing its genome. And item number three, a Cochrane review finds no evidence that electric fans are useful in a heat wave. So first, let's poll the audience. Those who think that item number one about beige fat is the fiction. So if you think this one is the fiction, applaud. Okay. Those who think the E. coli is fiction, applaud. Ah, okay. We got the physicists in the back and the biologists in the front, apparently. All right. And those who think that the uh, electric fans aren't useful in a heat wave is the fiction, applaud. All right. Pretty even, pretty even. So, Reed, as our guest, you get to go first. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before you give us your expert analysis?
5: Thank you. Uh, longtime listener of the show, uh, big skeptic fan, and about three years ago, made a fateful trip down to Fort Lauderdale and met. Uh, the amazing one himself, James Randi. My wife and I went down there. A couple months later, we ended up at TAM, saw you guys live, and uh, it was was kind of inspired to be a little bit more proactive about skepticism and science. And so, we did make Dr. Sexy Time, which is supposed to be a uh, adult uh, science based sex education app. Uh, and a portion of the proceeds this month do go to the SGU. So hopefully, you can actually travel a little bit further and continue to spread your message. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks All right. for having me. So what do you think about these items? Well, none of them have anything to do with sex, so uh, <laughs> I feel a bit like Yuri Geller in The Carson Show. A lot of pressure. <laughs> not, not feeling my power right now. Um, but so the first one, uh, it, it sounds interesting. There is, uh, at least in, in my reading, there's, there's brown fat, which is important in uh, reproduction. Um, so the idea that there is some new type of fat that is not quite white fat or brown fat is plausible. Um, I don't see anything that would necessarily make that totally outlandish. Um, resurrecting 500 million-year-old uh, bacteria sounds pretty cool. And the heat wave, electric fans would uh, increase air circulation, allows you to get some bang for your buck out of your own perspiration uh, to cool you down. That, that is the point. But you need, uh, you do need some air. So I, I'm having trouble with that one. Why would there be no benefit to uh, passing more... Air over people during a heat wave, so I think I'm going to go with number three.
2: Okay, excellent, George. That reasoning
1: is is really good. <laughs> um, I I love the idea of there being multiple colors of fat, because then it could just be an excuse to eat certain kinds of food more. Just I'm I'm working on my beige fat. <laughs> That's what this taco is for, and this yeah. Uh, so uh, that would be really cool. Um, The only question I have, there's the there's the resurrected in quotes, which whenever whenever there's some kind of a caveat with quotes, I always wonder if that's some kind of a trick.
2: Well, um, I mean, I'll, I'll explain that. Cause I thought the the rest of the uh, item explained it, but it means that, like, an individual... Oh, oh, I'm
1: sorry. Yes, please explain it. I'm sorry that, yes, please. Yes, please. Mm-hmm.
2: for the slow ones, you know... I appreciate but, it. Um, <laughs> not a real, like, one bacterium was res brought back to life, but by they reconstituted it by cop- completely copying its genome. I cloned it, in, in a sense. Kind of. It would be more of a clone, yeah, exactly. But, the, you know, the news items use the word resurrected in quotes, right?
1: Okay, so where are they going to find... The source for that copying is a question, but I, I think I think number three, the the electric fan that just yeah that it would help you perspire, like you said, that if nothing else in terms of, but okay, but is that just sensation, which is which is BS? Like if you're talking about te- like actual skin temperature doesn't change. Oh, I don't know. I'm gonna say number three. I'm gonna say the the the, the fan heat wave is the fiction.
2: Okay, Bob. Remember we're live. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow, these. I have issues with all of
6: these. Um, all right, the first one, the beige fat, sounds ridiculous. But, I mean, I could see them finding some new type of fat cell that's similar to brown fat, which is really interesting fat, by the way. Brown adipose tissue is, is the most me- metabolically active tissue. Um, maybe not the most, but it's incredibly metabolically a- active. And it's fat, which is, which is bizarre. So you, you want a lot of brown fat. But beige fat, yeah, I could see them being silly and kind of playing off of that. Let 's see the, the third one, yeah, that one doesn 't make much sense e- either, but the one that 's really getting me though is, is number two, so that assumes that you've got that assumes that you 've got a five hundred million year old genome, which is, how is that how is that preserved thats that 's one of the key reasons why we 'll never really reproduce dinosaurs because the, the, their genomes or enough of it just does not last, so I think that is the the fatal flaw in that one, um, so i 'm going to have to say that number. Two, the uh, the bacteria
3: one is fiction. All right, Jay. Uh, the one about the fat, I think at this point the, the, it would be odd if they they hadn't found it by now. I mean, you know, why wouldn't scientists have, have found this fat before? And I'm assuming it's in human, right? It is in humans. So beige fat, maybe it's of a, a kind of has properties of the other two kinds of fat. Maybe it's like what happens in between when the two interface. Um, but I still think it's really odd that they haven't found it. Like, why would they just find that today? It's, it, it's confusing. Then what about the resurrected um, E. coli? I was thinking about what Bob said about the, you know, how would they be able to piece it together. Maybe they were using, they were borrowing pieces from existing bacteria and all that. Maybe it's just a, you know pieces of it, but, and then they use the bulk of, of oh. bacteria that's alive today. And I don't think I'm going to go with that one. And then what about the fan? So I'm thinking... I think the key term here is that it's a heat wave. It's not just on a hot day, but when they say a heat wave, we would think it's a, an extended amount of time, and maybe people get dehydrated. So the fans don't help at all when they get dehydrated, because at that point, you know, maybe day three of a heat wave doesn't matter what you have blowing on you. If you're you know you're going to die from dehydration, and the fans not going to be able to do much. So. I'm going to not pick what Bob went with, and I'm going to go with the first one as the fake, the one about the beige fat. Beige fat. All right, and Evan.
0: All right, uh, isolating the new kind of fat. I think the point there is isolating, not, not dis- necessarily discovering, right? So they've just kind of taken all the fat that they knew about, but they've now re- made a new category. Because what, it's brown fat and yellow fat? Are those the two white. kinds of fat? And beige white, kind brown of and white. Bra- oh, brown right. and white. So beige may be, you know, is kind of a maybe a shade in between those. So you got one in the middle now, but now you have two what, Fats of the Gaps now, right? <laughs> so they'll come up with two new categories. I think that one's uh, correct. The bacteria, uh, everything they've said, I, uh, I've been, uh, yeah, I kind of agree with this. is how, how, Where are you going to find this uh, this old bacteria to resurrect or, or go by? Um, so I'm kind of leaning towards Bob is thinking that that one's the fiction. The one with the heat wave and the fans, um, no evidence that electric fans are useful in a heat wave. Well, may, you know, you have to kind of define what heat wave is here. Um, uh, it has a heat very wa- specific definition. Is that three days or more of 100-degree-plus temperature? Is that
3: technically like the that. heat wave? Something day, like that. Three days or He's more? He's not giving or up the info. Well,
0: you know, the problem with the that one is, um, I don't know, how often does it stay, you know, the heat wave, you've got daytime, nighttime, the temperature does fluctuate. Um, and I think, you know, fan, maybe if it doesn't work in the most powerful part of the heat wave in the middle of the day, you know, yeah, it's probably still going to work at night, though. Uh, Right When the temperature does drop at least a little bit, the temperature doesn't stay consistent for three days. So I think that the fan one is the fiction.
2: Okay. So I thought that before the panel spoke that the audience was pretty mixed, pretty evenly mixed. So let's very quickly resurvey you guys. So again, applaud if you think this is the fiction. Who thinks that the beige fat is the fiction? (laughs) Who thinks the E. coli is the fiction? And who thinks that the heat wave, the fans, is the fiction? Pretty even, but I think there was a little bit of a go-with-Bob effect in there. I think Bob G.W.B. had a little bit of an influence. So, well, let's find out. Uh, let's, we'll take these in order. We'll start with item number one. Scientists uh, have isolated great. a new kind of fat cell in humans known as beige fat. And that one is science. Hey. Very nice. Uh, so, Big yeah, there surprise. is white fat and brown fat. White fat, the, the, the purpose of that is to store uh, calories, to score, store energy. Um, brown fat is highly metabolically active, and that burns calories to produce heat. So probably important for heat generation and temperature regulation. Um, beige fat... Uh, which occurs you know, in, in, along the spine and only you know, a couple of locations in the body. So it's not everywhere, which is probably why it wasn't discovered. It, it occurs in little pea-sized little uh, patches. Like brown fat as well. Yeah, very similar to brown fat. Um, so this is a, a mixture of white and brown fat in that it's, it's not very metabolically active uh, un, until it's triggered. And then when it's triggered, it becomes almost as metabolically active as brown fat. What triggers it? That's a really good question. Um, so it's triggered by a couple of things. The, Heat uh, wave. Probably the most interesting thing e. the most interesting thing that triggers it is muscle activity. So when you exercise, it releases the, a hormone called irisin, and that triggers uh, a specific gene in the, in the beige fat and makes it behave like brown fat. So that may be a reason why exercise is good for calorie burning, because you're activating your beige fat. It's also triggered by cold, which makes perfect sense if you're cold then this, you, know, you trigger the cells that make heat, that become, meta- so it's your thermostat, kind of. Yeah. So, like, beige fat, I mean, brown fat's always on. Beige fat is, which is not quite as, as, as dark as, as brown as brown fat is, and it's also not always active. It gets triggered. So that was cool, right? Yeah, very cool. Yeah. All right, let's go to number two. Mm-hmm. Scientists have resurrected a 500-million-year-old bacteria, E. coli, by uh, reproducing its genome. Yeah, please. And that one is the fiction. Oh! Um, But what scientists at Georgia Tech have done is that they've resurrected a single gene from an E. coli 500 million years ago. Uh, Elongation factor two. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Tu. Um, and so that, I thought that was cool. They were able to figure out what the gene was like five hundred. It's a gene that's still around in the E. coli, but they were able to figure out what it was, was like five hundred million years ago. Um, there are different ways that old genes get preserved. They could be, you know, inserted into. Uh, into other genomes, for example. They became like genetic fossils that we could then say, oh, look, you know, at this point in time, and you, know, you could phylogenetically to figure out how old they are, um, this, this is the, the form of that gene. This is the sequence that it had. What the scientists are doing, so they basically they made several lines, cell lines of E. coli with this old gene, and they're just letting them evolve for thousands of generations and seeing what happens. Do they evolve along the same path that E. coli evolved over the last, you know, hundreds of millions of years. Well, so they, well probably not, right? Well, probably not. I mean, like I, I don't pressure. know why they, yeah, they, they would. But there's, so it, it, it's, that's the point, though. They, they did this so that they can see what happens with these old or ancient uh, bacteria to see how this gene changes over evolutionary time. And it, it, that will tell us something. I mean, that's interesting. Will it be the same? Will it be random? Are... Will pressures act roughly in the same way as they did historically? So it's an interesting experiment they were able to do by resurrecting that gene. Very cool. All right, the fan. A Cochrane review finds no evidence that electric fans are useful in a heat wave. That one, of course, is science. Um, So a couple of things to key in on here. Uh, The the one thing that I think that may um, have put this into perspective is that they're not saying that there's evidence that they don't work. They're saying that there's no evidence that they do work. But that could simply be due to the fact that it really hasn't been very well studied, which was essentially the case. But there are studies looking at the utility of distributing electric fans in, in areas, parts of the world, where there are heat waves, and then seeing what happens. Do, do we keep people alive, essentially, or you know, reduce uh, the incidence of heat stroke or death by giving people access to fans, and they found that the, there's not that much evidence, and what evidence there is is either mixed or negative. It's, there's really no basis to conclude that it's effective. What they did find was, and Evan, um, or Jay and Evan, I think, keyed in on this the heat wave thing. That actually is a very important detail. This doesn't mean that electric fans don't work at all, because, yeah, the fans blow air across your body. If you're sweating, it evaporates the sweat and it cools you down. Uh, and it's better than a mechanic, you know, if you're just fanning yourself, you're actually being physically active, so that kind of counteracts it a little bit. But what they found was that when the temperature is over 35 degrees Celsius, that uh, having a fan blow on you has no benefit. Uh, and is actually counterproductive. Less than 35 degrees, and it could, it could be beneficial. So in a heat wave, when it's over 35 degrees, the fans are actually counterproductive because the air you're blowing across yourself is too warm. Uh, to really have a benefit. And something that Jay said is that it really accelerates dehydration because it evaporates your sweat very quickly. So that becomes counterproductive as well. So it doesn't really work. The dehydration is counterproductive. But 35 degrees seems to be the magical cutoff. Obviously, there's probably not a sharp line, but in the, uh, the studies that have been done. So who would have thunk it? Electric fans don't help if you're really hot. Do
1: they factor humidity at
2: all? Into that? Um, I, I don't know. That's a good question. That, yeah, that would seem to be a huge. If it's more humid, it might might work a little bit better. but, yeah. but uh, they didn't they didn't control for that variable. It was just temperature was the variable they were going for. All right, so good work, Bob. Uh, did anyone else here go with Bob? I don't think so. Nope. so. solo win for Bob. And we're out of time. And we're out of time. So thank you all for joining us for at TAM. And at uh, our, the second recording of the SGU, thanks again to the J-Ref and DJ uh, Grothy for giving us the stage, and of course to James Randy. And thank you to George for joining us up on stage at being a good sport. And thanks for Reed also for supporting the SGU and joining us up on stage. And the quote is, Sometimes, even by accident,
3: the universe makes beauty, and we can stand back in awe of it. Even better, we can figure it out. Science. I love this stuff. Phil play. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Give it up for the Skeptics' Guide to the Universe.
0: The Skeptics' Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the contact us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.